0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Lubin's (laughs) Knockrunner! Corey learned a new word today, and he's so excited about it. Um, On today's episode... We will be discussing lu bins and lolbins and all the other bins that could potentially let a threat actor compromise your machine and specifically some guidance from every government agency under the sun on how to combat that threat even now new before Zeal- that even oh, sorry, new zealand is it
1: now six eyes now that new zealand's joined
0: sorry. i don't yeah whatever uh before that <laughs> we cover the latest doj takedown of a hostile botnet uh, and then we cover the the story of the week last week: weaponizing toothbrushes. Was it real or was it not? Uh, with that, let's go ahead and brush our way in. Man, that was bad. <laughs> if only you could get your kids to do it. Yes, one day. So uh, let's start with our first story this week, Corey. And this one. When you and I like saw, I think it was you that probably shared it with the team. Tuesday, um, I think, yeah, when the, the first story came out. When the first story came out on this, it was a, a German news publication called uh, Arriger Zeitung. I totally butchered that, so I'm so sorry. But uh, They published a report claiming that 3 million smart toothbrushes had been infected by hackers and turned into a botnet. Uh, after they had interviewed a Swiss employee of Fortinet. Uh, the article went on to claim that this botnet was used in a DDoS attack against a Swiss company's website, causing it to collapse under the strain uh, and resulting in the loss of millions of euros in business. Um, and it claimed that these toothbrushes were all vulnerable due to their Java operating system. So let's stop there, because when we first saw this link, I think it was like Tom's Hardware or something, the
1: translation. Yeah, English the original one.
0: Of the german article like my first thought yeah. was that's insane but you know what you know it's it's believable. plausible yeah, yeah. plausible
1: it, it could happen by the way one other note is the dos attacks that were being done that that was mentioned during this one was a uh, one that some russian hacktivists have been doing too so even related to a russian hacktivist. but yeah i mean i think as we'll get deeper into it if you think about it a lot of these smart toothbrushes or, wire, or, or electric toothbrushes, they typically don't have too much internet connection in the toothbrush. They might have Bluetooth, Bluetooth low energy. But the base stations are getting silly, silly complex for, in my opinion, no reason. I, I don't think we need to internet connect everything like that lovely egg holder you got once for your refrigerator. But some of the base stations for toothbrushes do have Wi-Fi. Do have internet connections, and you and I both know that there's tons of IoT that just use off-the-shelf Linux installs and could use things like Java to do everything in the same way like an Android operating system would. So it's plausible. We have seen IoT botnets before. Mirai, granted it was routers, more traditional computing devices, but IoT botnets existed. So when this first came out, it's like, wow, look at this. This could be really big, you know, as far as eye-opening news. But but let's see the evidence. Tell me more about this, Botnet.
0: Well, before that, I actually, I want to push back on your uh, saying stupid connectivity for a toothbrush. Because I, as a, a parent right now, am having a hell of a time getting my kids to brush their teeth <laughs> twice a day. And I'm envisioning this future where if the toothbrush does not run for two minutes twice a day, I cut their internet to all of their electronics for the rest of their, the day. Yeah, locks out their yeah. devices and turns exactly. off all their lights <laughs> until they. <laughs> so I would love that kind of connectivity, and I'm sure there's. It's probably there on some toothbrush. I'm probably not the first person to think of that. I just haven't fully explored it, but I do think that it's. I admit that more would be practical cool. and yeah, more practical. I, than I, although a smart I, I think I'd of my nothing.
1: my seventy year old parents would say, "Come on, you can get your kid to brush your teeth without technology."
0: <laughs> it's pretty dang <laughs> difficult without like physically going in yeah, there and standing over them while they're not brushing their teeth. But anyways, they'll get uh, close so.
1: to teenage them soon and they'll, they'll want to brush their teeth more and more as they, uh, as the teenagerness hits.
0: I sure hope so. Cause speaking from my own mistakes as a kid, you don't want to deal with the ramifications later of not nope. taking care of your teeth. Uh, but this is not a topic on tooth and healthcare. Uh, it's a topic mm-hmm. on a security, uh, a publication about a botnet seemingly taking down a Swiss website fueled by tool- toothbrushes. Um, so the following day after that post, uh, I guess the day that that post came out, there was a lot of like social media chatter about this kind of doesn't pass the significant test in some cases. And the following day, Fortinet ended up issuing a statement uh, saying that the report was inaccurate. They said that the toothbrush scenario was presented as a illustration of a given attack type and not based on actual research from Fortinet. They then blamed a translation basically uh, saying that it stretched a narrative topic from to the point where a hypothetical and an actual scenario were blurred. So uh, Fortinet came back saying, you know, we think it was a mistranslation. Well, the German news outlet uh, came back right after that saying uh, that they, first off, they're retracting the report itself. but. Specifically, they said, actually, uh, it wasn't a mistranslation. In fact, we <laughs> gave the story to Fortinet to go and approve the text, and Fortinet approved it in summary, uh, and then they published oh, it. it. post, yeah. And so By the way, Fortinet it has nothing has- to do
1: with this story, and I totally support this news media because it does sound like they're right. But when you said actually, I couldn't help it. But- actually <laughs> sorry yes, for people exactly. that don't see the video i'm pushing up on my glasses while i say actually
0: but i mean so it seems like we're in this kind of back and forth now of the news publication saying you know we gave you a copy of this to review and it had that line of text in there saying that it was a actual attack in fact the yeah. actual quote was like this may seem like a hollywood thing but it actually happened was like the literal text yeah in there. And for them that approved that, That's
1: the most damning because I, as someone that does, I think both of us do uh, security press for our company, WatchGuard, and we do use hypothetical situations all the time. Like I, I think both of you and I are, we try to avoid hyperbole. We aren't there to make up BS. Uh, but uh, our point when we talk about internet of things attacks is they can and have happened. And sometimes you do want to use fictional situations, letting the whole world know they're fictional as you're talking about them to show the potential future if we don't correct things. I mean, if you get down to it, that's what annual predictions are. It's just people extrapolating real life to currently a fictional prediction, but one that could come true. So you could, you could definitely like give a company the benefit of the doubt in presentations I've seen, because I've seen them talk about fictional situations to illustrate a point. But the big thing is anyone that does this makes it very clear. This is fictional. Then they might tie it to, oh, but this child's watch was hacked in this way or this other thing. You know what I mean? So yep. you can use fiction to illustrate a point, but you want to tie it to reality. So I think the, the damning part of this, Mark, was that one thing that you said, if they really ended it, like, this seems like a Hollywood attack, but it actually happened. That's just simply a lie. That is a
0: problem. Yeah. And I think that's an issue. Like. I, like you just said, I like using hyperboles or it, this, I would consider it a hyperbole, a hypothetical scenario, but it is still grounded in, like it could potentially happen. And that's a good example, but
1: To me, hyperbole is over-exaggerated. And to me, like the, the hyperbole part is that a toothbrush could turn into a 3 million botnet. Right. Like I could see a toothbrush being hacked, but it probably would only account for thousands that might be available. Uh so I, I I don't necessarily think using friction is hyperbole I think uh saying making a claim as much as a, a single toothbrush manufacturer accounted for a 3 million botnet is where it's that part is over exaggerated which is what I consider the definition of hyperbole
0: That's fair uh, I guess another point like there does seem to be, this took off, like, as soon as that news post came out. And like oh, yeah, my reaction was, that sounds insane, yeah. but, you know, I trusted it. Could happen. And I even went and, like, told my family, like, wow, this is nuts. Like, a bunch of toothbrushes took down yeah. a Swiss website. I immediately noticed there that was, that was no,
1: yeah, There's no evidence of it. So I was hoping that we'd get a follow-up from the researcher. But I, I was the same way. I'm like, wow, if this is real, this is going to be a story that everyone uses for years. Yeah. Because, like you say, it's it's plausible. It's not, the three million is the thing that was surprising, but the idea that smart toothbrushes could be hacked and then leveraged for something like a DDoS, because like that's always the, the argument with people that say, why would people target IoT? Yeah, who really cares if I own your smart toothbrush? Well, it's still an internet connected resource to could DDoS. So a lot about this story was very plausible so that if you weren't really looking for the evidence, Even security
0: experts could believe its plausibility. And I guess maybe I am being naive and like erring on the side of, yeah, that's probably correct. But after the fact now, my concern is that was pretty easy to get a bunch of people, myself included, on board with this being a actual thing that happened. And how could that potentially be applied maliciously? Like thinking misinformation from like a hostile foreign country, say claiming some cyber incident. And it turns out it just literally never happened.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was Robert Graham that uh, said these, the real doses that happened that were being related to during this story were from a Russian threat actor. And, uh, you know, if you were trying to create misinformation about your power, that would be interesting. My other concern, though, is and this is the equal. It, it's still misinformation like you, Mark, but misinformation has two problems. One, the fake stuff. Like we talk about deepfakes all the time, sure, yes, the fact that you can have a very convincing picture or video of a real person saying something that's a lie—that's a concern. But my bigger, longer-term concern is it—it it messes up the truth too. Real, like this is close enough to plausible that there will be stories in the future that are true that have evidence. And once this type of when one company lies and causes fud and misinformation it's going to it's not only going to make people doubt everything but it's then going to make them doubt truth too because how do they if something really spectacular comes out that actually is evidence-based and but they don't know enough to find the evidence how are they going to know the the difference so i think that misinformation goes both for the the lies that will come out with misinformation but also for the fact that it's going to make people not believe the truth anymore when it comes out because unless you're the expert that goes and digs up the evidence how will you know
0: well good and thing fakes,
1: we... how can you even
0: know <laughs> sorry good thing we only have to worry about this in cybersecurity and not even wider ranging potentially political implications yeah. in this coming year
1: i'm glad it won't affect politics or science or 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 anything else in the world
0: <laughs> yeah either way uh, it does fortunately or unfortunately appear that this toothbrush story was strictly bs and false but uh, I wanted to believe. We'll see
1: what happens in the future. I mean, I'd be curious to see how the industry reacts to this. He said, she said, I need some good Dang. news, Mark. There has to be some good news in security, though. Corey, I've got some good news for you. Uh, so really? the US. Wait yeah. a second. This is the four four three. I thought we were always the world is burning. We have good
0: news. Well, this next story, the US DOJ cool. just published a report at the end of January disclosing a court authorized operation to disrupt a botnet of hundreds of US-based small office, home office routers that had been hijacked by the People's Republic of China, uh, specifically the state-sponsored threat acting group known as Volt Typhoon. Uh, So Volt Typhoon had used routers that were previously compromised by an unrelated botnet, the KV botnet, to mask the origin of their activities. Uh, They then leveraged this botnet to target critical infrastructure organizations in the US and elsewhere. Now, if you remember, like this is not the first time we've talked about Volt Typhoon, Volt Typhoon I'm pretty yeah. sure we have almost every week for the last month. Uh, we even way back in May, the FBI and CISA released an, ad, released an advisory uh, detailing some of their activities. On the podcast, we talked about Microsoft's research post about Volt Typhoon compromising uh, internet exposed Fortinet devices to gain a foothold on networks. So they've been around and rummaging around for the last year pretty prolifically, and this does seem to be at least one big takedown the US government was able to punch them back in the face over, which is nice.
1: By the way, lots of network and security companies are no stranger to state-sponsored threat actors going after their network-connected gear, including us. But I do think this, I mean, Russia is the one that we've cited a lot before, but just a reminder, Volt Typhoon from our past podcast, you know, this is China. So it's Oh, did I? Uh, oh, no, I hope he's not. China, China, it's not <laughs> infecting my brain. Subtly, I don't, China. <laughs> I see I that <laughs> like a human. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I'm a little sad that I, I was always mad about Russia going after public infrastructure. These are, uh, I mean, the, the Cisco and Netgear ones in particular are not only just small offices, they're homes. So these are state-sponsored actors in both Russia and China that don't give a crap about any sort of peacetime treaty and are literally going after civilian infrastructure. It just makes me very upset that Russia ever did it. And now seeing repeated attempts of China doing it is, is equally upsetting.
0: And it's unfortunately, it's an easy target. Like They even noted in their announcement that the majority of these compromised routers uh, were Cisco and Netgear routers that were end of life, meaning they had vulnerabilities and they were not going to get patched. And you know, we often talk in a, a business context of keeping your systems up to date and whatever. I think my like parents only update their router when it just literally stops working and stops giving them internet access. They're not going to go in there and install the latest D-Link or Netgear security patch. Even or when it's answered, it's or- but-
1: yeah, I will exactly. admit some of the home yeah. routers
0: are getting a little better at coming with
1: a default check mark for auto updating. But you, but you're right. I mean, back in the day, you would never get an update unless you went to the the router menu. And I don't think my parents have ever seen the router menu since I installed it. So I guess it, I should get my dad easy got target.
0: He's got a pretty good firewall set up at his place. Uh, but uh, that's also a watchguard one. A <laughs> nerd as well. Uh, I don't think so.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, 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 you're killing me. We'll have to do it an inventory him, get him cost. and them one over there. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> anyway. discount.
0: Um, so there was actually some more meat in this uh, disclosure from the FBI, too. Um, so FBI Director Christopher Ray, even as part of his statement, said, uh, quote, this operation disrupted the efforts of the PRC state-sponsored hackers to gain access to U.S. critical infrastructure that the PRC would be able to leverage during a future crisis. I think that's a big point. So yes, they went after consumer devices, but then they were effectively proxying their activity to compromise critical infrastructure through these devices. And let's go a little further too, that
1: besides proxying, it's not unthinkable that critical infrastructure, meaning think about a small energy company in Idaho has a Cisco or Netgear router sitting in some little... So I they, they haven't detail. I mean, obviously Ray didn't give all the details of that one line, but I it could have been even I we've been seeing a lot of CISA stuff to what do they call the other group? IS I, the 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 cert that specifically for critical infrastructure. But but either way, I, I it could have been them literally just hijacking some device Soho devices because Soho is small office or home office, but it could still be small office devices that are in public utility directly without yeah. needing to proxy through anything i didn't know if you meant proxy through a victim at home or proxy uh, like from use a, a the worker yep. yeah, it could matter. be direct too yeah i i i wouldn't put it past some of the small industry companies to have inexpensive network gear they don't always seem to have sec- security doesn't seem to always be top of mind since they used to rely on air gaps
0: and i don't want to like, I'm not trying to be a warmonger, but I want to open the can of worms again of when does a cyber attack become a act of war? Like if you go in and you start compromising citizens in a country, you start compromising critical infrastructure within an or- a country, like, yes, you're not lobbying physical bombs at them and blowing them up, but like it's this- is a prelude uh, to something and it's an aggressive act. putting your toe over the line at this point, in my opinion, at least. And that's not great. I I feel like it's a
1: big failure of the UN for not handling this and of NATO, but more the UN because NATO doesn't cover the entire globe. But we had predictions, it has to be five years ago that the UN would finally ratify some sort of cyber warfare treaty because we have rules for warfare. The UN, you know, People don't always follow them. <laughs> people often break the rules. But because we have a UN council, that's why there's war tribunals against people that lose wars and break the rules. We have descriptions of what types of attacks have to happen before, you know, you can discuss. Declare war and what is considered warlike. Why do we not have that for cybersecurity? The UN needs to do their job and do this. Because I agree with you, Mark. I agree. This is an aggressive act, and it's the fact that we don't have any rules around this that that allow that make it hard. Russia and China are literally prodding us to do something. Uh, in my opinion, it feels like they want a war. Uh, so I, I feel like there should be rules. A quick, this is kind of a slight digression since we're talking about warfare, just so you know, the reason the UN doesn't have that treaty is also because of Russia and China. Many, many times the UN councils have have I forget what they call it, but they've brought together committees to create a cyber war treaty. And uh, China and Russia say, yeah, yeah, we we like this. We want to do this. And for the general rules of this, what is cyber warfare? People agree on that. But the one thing they don't agree on is China and Russia want every state to have full control of their ins they basically want to censor their Internet. So part of their agreeing to this treaty is also forcing the ability for them to be the full control of the gates of their internet and thus censor their country. So that seems to be where the world is is fighting against them on trying to pass this treaty, but that seems to be the holding point.
0: China's already there with the great firewall of China for the most part. And it yeah. sounds like Russia is it. almost there as well, too. If it was, was it last week or the week before where uh, internet access in Russia was disrupted for a couple of hours due to a certificate issue from them clearly man in the middle yeah, in all of the connections the without traffic. having yeah. passing, passing out certificates to all their clients. So they're clearly testing with some sort of yeah. great firewall of China. They, they, like they, just, they
1: just want official control of their own internet, which I, anyways, whatever the reason, that seems to be the holdup. But like you say, this shouldn't be, I mean, something has got to happen. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I hate throwing, like, I bet you our government is doing things back. I don't know if I, in this case, I, you know, who was the first aggressor, but I have mixed feelings about Stuxnet. I certainly don't want, I, I ran to have nuclear weapons, but I, I I think Stuxnet was kind of a Pandora's box that we opened, and now we're seeing the result of. So, if you want to also point fingers two ways, we we... Allegedly we started this with Stuxnet, so so we don't have our hands clean either.
0: I think one of the problems we have without some sort of like international understanding of what is acceptable or not and like a way to enforce it. The only other way to fight back on this is to disrupt it and then punch them back in the face. And at that yeah. point you're just, you know, escalating it and escalating it until it becomes an so even it goes bigger. To issue. War. Yeah. What the FBI
1: is doing is at least uh, disrupting it. Uh, yep. We haven't gone to punching them quite back in the face, but I think by publicly disrupting, I, I think we're doing the best, uh, what's well, not the the best, not passive aggressive punch back in the face we can. We're disrupting it, but then we're telling the whole world what they did and saying, ha ha, we're smarter, we disrupt it. And by the way, world, look what these a-holes are doing. So I, I guess that's a subtle punch back. I want to correct one of my own other points too, is the other reason we need the rules of war. is I mentioned Stuxnet. I I don't necessarily think. I I think some of that was a Pandora's box, but I want to also point out my own false equivalency. Stuxnet was a very targeted thing to a military target. There were it it didn't work because that's why Stuxnet was discovered. But it had code specifically not to work on computers that weren't a target. If you didn't have that particular PR, you know the the software that you could uh, program. Uh, the actual units. It wasn't supposed to actually install on your computer, and it was supposed to kill itself after a certain period of time, but it was slight programming mistakes that made Stuxnet expand further. But the point mm-hmm. I'm trying to make is, at least in Stuxnet, that was a very targeted military attack to a government-related facility. The, the difference in what we're seeing from Russia and China, it's, it's little restaurants and uh, detailing shops in Florida. And, and home users that are being infected by their state-sponsored malware. So it's civilians versus military targets. So, so yes, we can't always throw stones against espionage and cyber attacks, but I feel like there's a big difference in going after military targets and civilians. And that's the kind of thing that war treaties talk about. Even when you're in war, you're not supposed to go after civilians. You're supposed to go after military targets. So it's the kind of detail you need to, to say what is acceptable and what's not. And going after civilian targets is never acceptable.
0: Yep. Either way, I'm glad that the U.S. at least did disrupt this one, especially considering it does look like we are unfortunately angling towards crisis uh, in that neck of the woods. Feels hope that way. Not. I, you know, what? I hope that for all the doom and gloom we're saying for this year, that everything goes just hunky dory, and you know everything's happening. Such a Everyone weird is. year.
1: We're getting daily news of things like uh, democracies somewhat winning, like in Brazil, where a certain person that rigged election is now being held in the country. And uh, another leader has won where we're getting court cases that seem to be leaning on evidence. So we, we have this weird year where a lot of good things seem to be happening. And maybe there is not, maybe, maybe our systems and checks only and balances will save us. <laughs> but then a second later, a there's news that goes, oh, wait a second, the world's going to end. <laughs> yep, so let's exactly. just hope the year is uh, I, I want less bumps in my roller coaster during 2024.
0: Uh, I do too as well. Uh, well, let's end the podcast though, back on some cybersecurity guidance though. How's that sound?
1: And good, good uh, news too, I guess. Guidance is good news, right?
0: Yeah, so last week, uh, CISA released a joint advisory alongside, I think, just about every federal agency that exists, as well as every international (laughs) security agency as well. Uh, I've never seen as many of their, uh, what do they call them, stamps, whatever, uh, seals on a document ever until this one. Um, But the topic was important. It was on identifying and mitigating living off the land techniques. And it was basically a 46-page document that walks through the best practice recommendations, uh, all the way from detection, hardening, threat hunting, and remediating, living off the land-based techniques. Um, it includes like specific detection and threat hunting examples around two of the more popular living off the land uh, applications like, oh, look at that. Thank you, macOS, with the, uh, the fun little so peace sign is how you get balloons, apparently. Yeah. Okay. I got it now. That's another one. Um, specific around NTDS. T- if mutual. you do two peace signs, you
1: can get confetti. And by the way, everyone oh. on the audio podcast has no clue what we're talking about. If you check out our YouTube channel, you can see the video of the weird stuff happening in me and Mark's
0: backgrounds. Yeah. Thanks, macOS.
1: Um, although, so by the way, of- we also screwed up with our OPSEC. Everyone knows we have macOS, although I guess that wasn't really a secret. Corey, that's for a not a time. secret for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up. That's only because you keep mistakenly calling me
0: a fanboy. Anyways, uh, so they went over specific examples for NTDS util and PSExec as well. Uh, but overall like this was a extremely thorough document on recommendations around combating what's a pretty important threat like they start by defining lolbins living off the land binaries and scripts uh, which is a great github
1: it, site by the way you can go yeah. to there's a github lolbins.org i think is where it is so if you just look up lolbins you'll find it but they list yeah. all the windows binaries that are commonly could be used for malicious activity too
0: And they built this whole report off of like, just evidence they've even gathered from CISA's red teaming activities. So if you're a federal government agency or a critical infrastructure organization, you can engage CISA to come in and evaluate your security controls too. And they started by highlighting in the, oh, yes, Corey?
1: I I was also going to, I learned a new acronym. I don't know if that's good or bad. Like living off the land attacks, in my opinion, is a good term for any operating system. They're going to be different in different operating systems. Like you can use living off the land attacks against linux but the actual binaries and processes you're using and why you're using them will be different the the main point of a living off the land attack is using legitimate tools to do malicious deeds usually to hide your tracks but i had never heard apparently in mac os environments living off the land is returned is referred to as living off the orchid i had you heard uh, that before orchard orchard get it because it's an apple or orchid yeah orchard uh, i guess yeah okay And is there actually a Lubin's living off the orchards? I I don't, I do not know if there's a Lubin site. So I I did learn
0: a few things, I guess. I've got a, there's a gentleman from CISA that I've had the pleasure of like going to several speaking events with. And one thing that always stood out to me was his quip that the only way to get promoted in CISA is to come up with an acronym. Oh, and so I'm wondering if this is one of those scenarios of someone just got promoted in writing this report.
1: Uh, but anyways. Uh, that's certainly how you become a Gartner analyst: is you have to write yes. a new acronym for an industry vertical. Which thank
0: you for zero trust, but everything else you know we could do without. Um, do we so really the report, thank
1: them for zero trust? <laughs> I mean, I do. wasn't you know that
0: what? least least privileged applied
1: properly before it was, they made up no a new one gave name a for
0: it? Crap about it when it was least privileged. That was the nerdy security thing that everyone start, was yelling at each other with. Now zero trust is this easy to throw out. Oh, maybe not easy you to can follow understand it. it, but
1: yeah, exactly. It's a shortcut for people in the industry. By the way, yep. one site, if we show the screen again, uh, Lubins does exist, living off the, which is actually good. So, back to practical tips. We've talked about Law bins a lot on our podcast, uh, which is a good resource because you can go and learn the actual hashes and executable names for the things you ought to be monitoring in your SIM for malicious activity or, or in whatever monitoring software you have. So, on a Mac, it is probably good to know this site because you can uh, look at the different uh, Mac utilities like CSR util or caffeinate or defaults, or there's a ton of them just like like NS curl. And you can see how they might be maliciously used. So just for a practical tip, if you also didn't know about living off the orchid, I mean, you and I knew that there's Mac binaries you could also use, but I, I did not realize this site existed
0: too. So go check it out. And Did maybe, we really need a separate acronym though? Could we not just have a Mac no. OS tab on
1: on honestly, LOLBIN should have had different OS and platforms on it, because all living off the land binaries on any platform, Android, Mac, Windows, Chrome, what would not Chrome? Chromium. <laughs> uh, whatever probably should exist. But at least we now know if you have some Macs in your computer, go add it to things you watch in your monitoring tools.
0: So we'll get to some of those suggestions like that, that they went through the report. I'm not going to go through all 46 pages, because that's a lot. Um, but I So they started it out, though, by highlighting like some of the weaknesses that their red teams commonly find and leverage when attacking organizations. They point to one that stood out to me, where network defenders often think that uh bins, so these living off the land applications, are safe for all users just because they're safe for IT administrators, basically saying, you know, yes, your IT admin may need legitimately to use PS exec or WMI exec, but there's no reason for someone in your accounting team to use that. But organizations just blanket allow listed anyway. Um, they also pointed to uh, network defenders operating in silos, making it difficult to create a baseline for normal user behavior. Basically, if you're not getting the holistic view of the entire environment or system, it's really difficult to differentiate what's good from what's an anomaly. Hopefully security experts know
1: that, but the, the point is if you're in IT or security and you're using your own behavior as the default, you get to exactly the problem you just said above, which is you are the type of user that uses PowerShell and uses Netstat and uses those tools for administrative and security reasons. And if you think that's normal activity and it becomes part of your baseline, you've now given that access to all your users. So yeah, it makes total sense that you, If you are operating in silos, you at least need to have different baselines for each silo so that your accounting team, you know which binaries they would never need to use in Windows. Uh,
0: There was another line that I think will hit close to home for everyone ever that has ever practiced security, and that's uh, leaders making decisions on business risk due to legacy systems and insecure software without sufficiently considering the assessments presented by their own security teams. (laughs) basically saying we need to keep this around because xyz we well what are hear they talking talk about we've never
1: had old web servers sitting around for years after their <laughs> end of life that seems that would never happen mark that just seems ludicrous what what does cisa think by the way heavy sarcasm everyone. Back, there's
0: a uh, <laughs> a large number of listeners on this podcast with a windows server 2008 yeah. system still floating around it's somewhere
1: usually not the security team
0: that wants to keep it <laughs> correct uh they also pointed to under tuned edr products that assume that all uh living off the land applications are safe
1: that blows me away Um, one of the we'll probably get to it later but the one thing i liked about this report is you and i often pivot from epp endpoint protection like antivirus, anti-malware to edr whenever we talk about living off the land because basically all that preventative, usually signature-based, even not signature-based, but the idea is to prevent things that are, are obvious, uh, that's not gonna help you with living off the land. EDR is where there's at least process monitoring, there's exploit injection monitoring. It, EDR, if it's doing its job, they should be watching the execution of these law bins to not just let PS exec or CMD run, but, Pay attention to what it's trying to do and how it's doing it with the parameters that use it uses. So, when you get to, I expect EDR products to be the ones that catch LOTR or Living Off the Land attacks. LOTR, <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. It. I invented my binary or my my acronym. Can I be part I of? That's you're now?
0: promoted. <laughs> when Sauron but, comes but to I'm, compromise it, your it, network.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it 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 would suck if there are some EDR products that don't really pay much attention to living off the land binaries. Yeah,
0: and the last bullet was just a lack of standardized hardening guidance for macOS specifically, as well for organizations. Well, thank you, CISA, for pointing
1: data. out Lubins. <laughs> exactly. I'm I'm going to I'm go so... to the Lou to get my Mac binaries.
0: Eh, gross. Um, <laughs> Spelled L-O. so, L-O-U. Through the rest of the report, though, they go into depth over like four main sections, like starting with detection, they talk about the obvious ones, enabling comprehensive logging wherever possible, uh, baseline uh, installed tools and software so you understand what's normal and then alert off of anomalies. Um, but also like we just talked about, selecting a minimum subset of admin tools that are allowed on the network and who can use them uh, and block it everything else, block it everywhere else and log whenever they are used. I think that's really important to catch a lot of these activities. Like your IT staff may have a legitimate need for PS exec, but you should be logging it and then looking for anomalies for that. By the way, this is a
1: hard thing because there's lots of tools, even our tools that we sell at WatchGuard, like uh, EPDR, that have capability to do full application whitelisting. But I think it's rare that people use it. Uh, and I think it's the we always talk about things like uh, certificate man-in-the-middle attacks for good, or we talk about using application control to block applications you don't want. And there's there's always a hard part to that, which is the learning phase, which is the beginning where you have to figure out what your company really needs. So I, I think what I'm getting down to is it makes very Nowadays, I think we need to get down to host based application whitelisting only. that uh, That means if you're in a, a more secure environment for your non-privileged users, every single application that they're allowed to run should be whitelisted. And that's hard though. That means you know, you're going to get support calls or, or help desk calls, you know. That means not just every program, but maybe even some widget they try to install in their extension might fail and they might call you. And you really need to, uh, the hard part about this is figuring out what is the business need of every role in your your, your organization. And making sure they have legit and easy frictionless access to their business need software. While not giving them a, you know, not giving them enough rope to hang themselves to run software that could get them in trouble. So, I think whitelisting is an obvious answer to this application whitelisting, even at a host level. But it's such a, I, I, it's one of the things that I haven't found even an easy button for us for Mark. It's, it feels so involved because every role is going to have slight differences. It's probably going to need more exceptions than the average security thing. So I I haven't found I I want to recommend whitelisting so much,
0: but it's the one thing that's it's quite hard to actually pull off,
1: in my opinion. We'll talk
0: about that a bit in the hardening section, which was the next one after detection, like specifically utilizing tools like Gatekeeper on macOS. Look, another macOS little notification thing, yay! Um, (laughs) Gatekeeper to allow specifically only signed applications to run. Uh, and then AppLocker or Windows Defender application control on Windows in order to control what apps are allowed to run on there. So the tools are there. And it's just, like you said, it's very difficult to set them up effectively without a mature enough team And to Gatekeeper,
1: I, I will say the good news about some of those is like Gatekeeper is a default on Mac. I think it's actually hard to turn off, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: Gatekeeper does some blacklisting. It doesn't do whitelisting. Uh, so like it's not going to allow bad things to run, but it's not necessarily going to stop a, a another process from always not interacting with one of its Lubin processes.
0: But yeah, I, I still basic. love Izzy.
1: you, you should you, you should use the default controls you have.
0: Uh, they also point to specifically in this report they've got hardening guides for windows linux mac os microsoft 365 google workspaces just linked in here uh, which is a great resource to have Uh, they point to setting up enhanced network segmentation and monitoring for higher hardening as well uh, so that you know if one device does become infected it doesn't spread to the entirety of your whole damn network um, and like also everyone, just... they
1: focus on monitoring, especially for NetBIOS or SMB, you know, the Windows file sharing stuff that's used, not just file sharing, but to, to, to send all kinds of authentication and commands to other computers. So, yeah, not only setting up that segment, but
0: specifically monitoring for Windows network activity that's unusual. And their last bit of hardening guidance is basically identify your tier zero most critical assets and really focus on hardening those Uh, yes even if you can't you know adopt best practices and hardening practices against every device on your network at least do it for the most critical ones um, like things that control your domain or certificate management um, or anything like authentication related it kind of makes sense it should go without saying but you know it should be risk 101 guide. that you you have an inventory
1: of all your data and assets that is set by criticality. And then you've done a risk equation of, and, and by doing the risk equation, you spend the most time and money securing the most important stuff. Yep, and The less time and money s- securing stuff that matters less.
0: And there are detection and threat hunting recommendations. They point to some specific uh, Windows uh Application logs to look for specific event IDs that you should be hit, uh, keeping an eye on. Um, they talk about monitoring things like SMB access across geographic sites or different network locations that could indicate lateral movement. Uh, they recommend looking for specific, like risky patterns. Like, for example, one they list was an office document spawning a scripting process, things like that, where it may happen legitimately for certain macros you're using, but should be rare enough and anomalous enough that you'd want to at least review it to make sure it is legitimate. Um, and then they have, like I mentioned earlier, specific threat hunting recommendations for things around um, NTDS util, which can be used to copy Active Directory uh, databases, and PS exec, which is used heavily for lateral movement by threat actors in a Windows for environment. Sure. By the um, way, the
1: one assumption this makes is, is you have monitoring tools and a team that does detection and monitoring and not just detection. Like we're not just talking logs that will tell you what to look at. We're talking a team that actually has created things that they can then go look at, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is actually important to our audience. Like we're talking to an audience that probably is often mid market or even smaller often, and you don't always have these teams. So one, I mean, as security gets more mature, you, you do need expertise, not just to have all this equipment set up so that you're preventatively securing yourself and not just have it logging to a place you can go look, but this requires something, whether it's automation uh, or usually humans to check on that automation to go actively do some things here and there. And uh, so just a shout out to, hey, if you you don't have a SOC and you're big enough, you might wanna consider getting one. And if you're not, if you're a small company, I know all this seems like it's out of reach stuff, but this is why things like MSSPs, Managed Security Service Providers, or even MSPs with security services exist. You can outsource some of this and as you're looking for trusted msps to to do your security your active security monitoring most that's what msps are for you know the person that sold you a project for a a device might set it up and configure it but the msp can sell you a 24 7 monitoring service to actually pay attention to stuff and as you're figuring out who to use you can ask them questions from this guide Are, are are you going to a monitor for SMB anomalies across my segments. Are you, you know, do you have something that will, will you tell me every time there's an office document that runs a script, or will you at least, uh, you know, be monitoring it and letting the legitimate ones go while blocking the the ones that are not, that look suspicious? So if you can't do it yourself, try to outsource and use cool guides like this to to kind of test and see who you trust the best to to be your MSP or MSSP provider.
0: Yeah, Uh, they ended the whole report with a big section on remediation, which is basically if you've detected you've been compromised, what are the key things you need to do? They point to investigate and determine the highest privilege level that the threat actor had access to. Um, So for example, if they made it all the way to your Active Directory domain admin, then you need to reset credentials of non-privileged accounts in the trust boundary, reset guest accounts, service accounts, things like that. It becomes a bigger issue than if they were just limited to a single user. Uh, have they have to do a big auditing.
1: forensic analysis, and that means you have to have all the logs and auditing tools to be able to do that. So, uh, I, I my the reminder I would add is to to make sure you have everything logging, and it's not just your security equipment; it's things like Windows and audit or authentication logs, blah blah blah.
0: They recommend auditing your network appliances and other edge device configurations for signs of unauthorized or malicious config changes. And if you do detect any suspicious activity, rotate all of your shared secrets in there. And that's not just passwords; that includes like VPN tunnel keys, routing secrets, TACACS or Radius secrets, RSA keys, anything the threat actor could have potentially seen. Uh, and then they also. Since this is CISA, and it's primarily towards critical infrastructure and federal agencies, they also highly recommend reporting or require reporting that compromise to an authoring agency as quickly as possible. And they list out specifically in the U.S. who you should report to. Uh, they've got lists here for Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders. Full size see three on
1: the list in the U.S.?
0: Uh, They recommend going directly through CISA or your local FBI field office because, as you and I have also discovered, sometimes IC3, it's not designed to immediately act, it's designed to just gather data and information, it feels like. Um, But either way, 46 pages of genuinely really good resources, Uh, they've got like 40 pages in an appendix or 20 pages in an appendix on the end of specific details for all of the recommendations. I love seeing this type of guide because it gives you at least a starting point of are we doing this if not let's put it on the project list to knock out and try and prioritize it i like the full aggregated level of this like
1: if if i were to be the critic uh there's really nothing to criticize in any of the advice but none of this to to me is new Uh, everything i read in here Including this, the examples and the certain law bins are things that have come out piecemeal by different security researchers, security org vendors. You know we've known about all these little different types of you know living off the land attacks, and we've been talking about them for years but the fact that they took the time to organize and aggregate and arrange this this 47-page white paper in a very useful way and have external resources. So all I'm saying is it's CISA is not the first one to share all these little tidbits of the device, but they have created a great aggregated spot that puts it all in one easy place for anyone to do and kind of consolidates a lot of tips that came from a lot of different places. So. I, I think even that alone, you don't have to be first, just being someone that makes it readable and actionable in one easy place with lots of stuff is a, a very good thing. So I yep. do like that. I do like this for sure. Again, CISA has is- been doing a lot of, of, of this type of thing. It's not just about getting information from people anymore. It's about really kind of being part of the community and teaching others how to help themselves.
0: And I love that. Like they've fully taken on the mantle of being the information disseminator to everyone out there, uh, to make an it ed- educator.
1: To yeah. yeah, to us security experts, this isn't new, but if you are just an IT person, this may be the first place you see an aggregated list of all the living off the land information. So it, they're just they're becoming educators, which I think is is something the
0: government should help with. Yep so the document again is called joint guidance identifying and mitigating living off the land techniques i definitely recommend downloading it and maybe reading it on your lunch break or something uh you might find something useful and immediately applicable for your organization
1: but, i feel man. like we're, have we turned into millennials now we're like uh giving love to CISA with our weird mac hand gestures uh, does Don't that mean we're me social in You're media the influencers?
0: Why are you saying we? You're an influencer, you. Mark.
1: You're an influencer.
0: <laughs> you are the when, one. When are you going to get
1: affiliate here. links? <laughs>
0: okay, I do genuinely appreciate everything Sissa has done, and sometimes this podcast does become the "Look at what Sissa did this week" podcast. But it's because they're doing great work, and yeah. I hope they keep it up. Heart emoji.
1: Don't yeah. worry, the world's ending in fire. I'm kidding. <laughs> i got sad we we had such a happy ending it felt wrong
0: there it is thanks, Corey. hey everyone thanks again for listening as always if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to rate review and subscribe if you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics you can reach out, reach out to us on instagram at watchguard underscore technologies thanks again for influencer? listening <laughs> You will hear from us next week. No, I'm not.